Matthew chapter 2 really starts to underline the narrative laid out in chapter 1, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, the one who would save his people from their sins. Matthew does this by continuing to lay out the story of Jesus in a way that constantly points back to Old Testament events and promises. Chapter 2 has four primary events or time frames in it, and each of these events are tied to an Old Testament passage linking the occurrence of that event to Jesus being the Messiah. The first time frame is centered around Jesus being born in Bethlehem, a fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. This is the famous section describing Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem, the wise men or magi who were led by a star to the place where Jesus was at. It had been revealed to these men that the child who was born was king of the Jews. They were respected men who bowed down to worship a young child and who presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts fit for kings and priests and offerings. It also introduces King Herod, the first of many leaders who would want Jesus dead. The second time frame is centered around Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt and escaping King Herod's purge of all males two years and under in the area of Bethlehem. Matthew ties this event to a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15, which is describing a time of great mourning over the death of children. The third time frame is centered around Jesus' return from Egypt after the death of Herod to fulfill Hosea 11.1, that out of Egypt God would call his own son. The last time frame relates to where Jesus and his family settled upon their return to Israel, in the region of Galilee, in the town of Nazareth. This is to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, which isn't a direct cross-reference, but is probably a reference to passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 that describe the Messiah as being despised and rejected, as people from Nazareth were held in very poor esteem. This chapter describes the real events surrounding young Jesus' life, and underlines how those events were not random. They were events prophesied hundreds of years earlier and predestined to be fulfilled by the Messiah, the faithful son who was called out of Egypt, the legitimate king of kings, the prophesied Messiah, Jesus the Christ, God with his people. Welcome back. I'm Brian, and hopefully that gave a good introduction to Matthew chapter 2. If we remember back to chapter 1, Matthew was focused on who Jesus was, hammering home his family tree and miraculous birth, his humanity and his divinity. He keeps up the fulfillment language this chapter. So for Old Testament nerds like me, this is a fun chapter to trace through the Old Testament. It's an interesting scripture walk opportunity. My biggest fear with reading this chapter is not for people who have never read it before. It's actually for people who have grown up around this story being told and retold in sermons and Christmas plays, that the people most familiar with this section are the people least likely to actually stop and read it in a meaningful way. A lot of times with stories like these, we skim over them and insert images we get from other places into the biblical narrative, instead of prayerfully meditating on what the Bible is saying. So for now at least, Set aside those images, and let's walk through the chapter. This chapter has different time frames and locations in it. If it was a movie, there would be different recording locales, each having a different subplot to them. 
each points back to an Old Testament prophecy. Three locations describe actions surrounding Jesus and his family. We get background on how Jesus' relocations fulfilled actions of the promised Messiah, the locations of Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth. The other location is Jerusalem, where we see King Herod trying to manipulate his chessboard and control the situation. This chapter really describes Jesus' first conflict with a leader in Jerusalem. Blumberg says that Matthew develops a contrast between the, legi- the illegitimate King Herod and the legitimate King Jesus. Let's dive into the first time frame. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here, baby Jesus and his family are living in Bethlehem. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the wise men or magi, depending on your translation, come to visit King Herod to ask him where this new king of the Jews was, because they wanted to pay their respects to him. King Herod, ruler of Jerusalem, probably thinking of himself as the current king of the Jews, doesn't respond well to this idea. His ego can't take the idea that someone else is the true king. He gathers together the Jewish scholars and leaders to find out what the Hebrew Bible says. They quote from Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, being small among the clans of Judah, out of you one will come forth that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. I want to expand on that part later. But Herod shares this with the wise men. He asks that they find the child and then report back to him. They then head to Bethlehem, find the child, and give some presents that are weird gifts for a kid, but that have a distinct purpose. Then because of a dream, these wise men don't report back to Herod, and instead vanish back to their home country. The timeline is interesting here. These magi don't arrive in Jerusalem and appear in front of King Herod until after Jesus is born, so they probably wouldn't have made it to Jesus until a while after his birth. He may have been a toddler at this point. Did you catch that, or did you picture a newborn being swaddled in a bale of hay? Don't get me wrong, the message is the same no matter where and what age you picture Jesus, but I want our images to be shaped by what scripture says, and not fitting our own images into the scriptures. It's innocent enough here, but it can cause major problems when it's done in other areas. But that's me digressing. Also interesting is who exactly these wise men or magi were. It's not talking about their hobbies. They were not magicians. Penn and Teller did not visit Jesus in a manger. No, Magi refers to their knowledge and vocation. They would have been considered to have a foot in both the religious and the political realms. These men would be familiar with having an audience with a king to provide guidance and wisdom. They were respected elders who were considered experts in astrology and astronomy. They would have also definitely been able to recognize any new stars that showed up. They were not from Israel. It says they came from the east and then returned back to their country. So they weren't native Israelites. Notice it says the wise men came from the east when they saw a star rise, not that a star rose from the east. We're not sure what country they were from, probably of Persian descent, but we don't know that for a fact. The Bible doesn't reveal that to us fully nor does it reveal their names or how many there were. It says there were three gifts, but not specifically one wise man per gift.
concerning the Magi, I want to note two connections here that trace back to the Old Testament. One where a non-Israelite oracle is asked to curse the Israelites, but who ends up blessing God's people. Another to a prophecy that a light would shine and men from other nations would be drawn to the glory of God, arriving on camels and presenting him with gifts of gold and frankincense. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites are traveling in the wilderness of Moab. The Moabites want something done about this and want a sorcerer oracle person to curse the Israelites. Apparently in ancient Moab, when you need someone like that, everybody knows you got to get Balaam. So they go to Balaam and ask him to curse these foreigners, the Israelites. Instead of a curse, Balaam gives a beautiful series of blessings. In Numbers 24, specifically, Balaam sees a future vision of a star that would come out of Jacob to be king and have dominion over everything. Starting in Numbers 24:16, he says, Who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, and sees the vision of the Almighty. Falling down and having his eyes open, I see him, but not now. I see him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. You could say that the wise men in Matthew 2 get to see firsthand this star and this king. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, God speaks through the prophet of a future glory. Chapter 60, verses 1 through 6 are a little long, but I'm going to read through all of it because it's beautiful. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh is risen on you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will rise on you, and his glory shall be seen on you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather themselves together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far, and your daughters shall be carried in the arms. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you. The dromeries of Midian and Epaph, all from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall proclaim the praises of Yahweh. I think this is a fuller picture of a future time when nations will flock to God and the new Jerusalem, but for sure we get some foreshadowing of these verses through the wise men from foreign nations, mounting on camels, bearing gifts, and worshiping God. Both the gifts themselves and how they were presented are super symbolic. The Magi worshipped this child fully. They traveled from afar and bowed down before a king. We already talked about the gifts of gold and frankincense in Isaiah 60, but there are a number of other places where these gifts are fitting for kings or priests or they go along with sacrifices. Jesus happens to check all three of these boxes. The gift of myrrh is mentioned in a few other places throughout the gospel accounts, but three specific ones come to mind. Right here in Matthew 2.11, surrounding the birth narrative of Jesus. Mark 15.23 is another place. It's while Jesus was on the cross and he was offered wine and myrrh. And the third, at the end of John 19, is being used to prep Jesus' body for burial before being placed in the tomb. Myrrh shows up here at Jesus' birth, then again at his death, and in the last story we get 
right before his resurrection. I don't think that that's coincidence. The last thing I have from this section is to circle back around to the Micah quote. The text quotes Micah chapter 5 verse 2, talking about a ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. I want to expand on Micah's description of this ruler and read chapter 5 verse 4 and the start of verse 5 too. He shall stand and shall shepherd in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they will live. For them he will be great to the ends of the earth. He will be our peace. This ruler from Bethlehem would be a shepherd, have the strength and majesty of God, have dominion over the entire earth, and be the peace of his people. So Micah is specifically and short-term talking about the peace that the people would come from an upcoming invasion, but that this passage is also talking about how God's people would find peace through the true shepherd is undeniable. Jesus, the true king from Bethlehem, our true shepherd, who offers peace and rest to all who come to him. The next sequence covers verses 13 through 18, and it's really two parallel paths. One, the path to life for Jesus and his family. The other, the path of wickedness on the part of King Herod that leads to death for many innocent children. Where else in the Bible do we see the narrative of a family fleeing to Egypt for safety, the slaughter of Israelite children, and then a mass departure from Egypt into the promised land? If your brain is connecting it to the Exodus story, then you're right where Matthew wants you to be. Matthew wants his audience to link this story of redemption through Jesus with the story of Israel's redemption out of Egypt through God. While in Bethlehem, Joseph gets a warning from God for his family to flee the area and head to Egypt, a command that faithful Joseph obeys. So once again, we have a faithful Joseph fleeing from persecution into Egypt, setting up a battle between God and a lowercase k king. The Old Testament script quoted is Hosea 11.1, which is referring to how God's people were delivered out of oppression in Egypt through the Exodus. Interestingly, Verse 11.2 then calls out how, despite this initial exodus, God's people ran from him. The ESV translates Hosea 11.2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Talking about how the Israelites God saved in the exodus were not obedient to God, foreshadowing the need for a new exodus at the hands of the Messiah, the Son of God, who would be perfectly obedient to God. All jumping back to Matthew 1.21, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sins. But as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus head for Egypt, King Herod hatched an evil scheme. He still was not comfortable with this new so-called king of the Jews, so his plot is to murder all of the boys in Bethlehem, in the Bethlehem area, two years or younger. Some skeptics point out that it's hard to find history outside of the Bible of this atrocity. If you really dive into it, though, Bethlehem was really small. Some historical commentaries like Blumberg point out that it may have only had as many as 20 boys two years or younger. Now, I want to be clear. This is still mass murder. It's still an atrocity. But compared to the brutality of King Herod and his peers, the deaths of 20 children were almost a rounding error. 
it wouldn't have gotten too much attention outside of Bethlehem itself. Again, still terrible, but this helps explain why it doesn't show up in a bunch of other places in history books. As you read through the chapter, notice how Herod is described. How are King Herod's characteristics described differently from what we know of Jesus, King Jesus' characteristics? I mean, yes, there is the obvious. Herod is a murderer and Jesus came to return people to life. I'm looking a little deeper. Herod shows up as troubled. The NLT says he was deeply disturbed. He comes off as paranoid, restless, angry, furious even, and super prideful, right? Jesus is the opposite of, of like all of those things, and we see that in his life as we continue to read through Matthew. The Old Testament prophecy referenced in this section is Jeremiah 31.15. But again, I like to read some of the surrounding passages for context. Jeremiah 31.15 says, Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's directly followed in verses 16 and 17 by a hopeful tone. Thus says Yahweh, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says Yahweh, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your latter end, says Yahweh, and your children shall come again to their, board, their own border. And the chapter ends with a promised new covenant that would save the people and forgive them their sins. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts, and in their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my peoples. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In the last section of Matthew chapter 2, we get the king's death and the return of Jesus' family to the small town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Just like in the Exodus, we see that a head-on confrontation with God doesn't work out so well. So in verse 19 starts with the death of King Herod. After Herod's death, God instructs Joseph to return Jesus from Egypt to Israel. The vocabulary of God's call to bring Jesus back to the land to redeem his people is very similar to God's call to bring Moses out of the wilderness to save the Israelites. In Exodus 4, Yahweh said to Moses in Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. In Matthew 2, God says, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. He arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So, Joseph settles his family in the region of Galilee. But why there? Well, history tells us that King Herod had two sons, and when he died, his land was split between them. 
One of the sons was super cruel and was actually replaced by the Roman Empire shortly after he started because he was just awful. The other son controlled the region of Galilee and was a little bit better. So there is a practical reason for Joseph to choose Nazareth in Galilee. But we find out that the true reason was that God used these events to fulfill a prophecy that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. This is a weird statement because I don't believe the town of Nazareth is mentioned in the Old Testament, but the place seems to be chosen to reflect the thoughts of people at the time. We're familiar with Nazareth because of Jesus, and so in our mind the town takes on a bigger significance than it had in first century Israel. Nazareth was a backwater podunk town, and the people who came out of there were thought to be backwoods. I might get myself in trouble with similes, but it would be like school kids today using the term redneck. It would have it would have carried a negative connotation if you were called a Nazareth somebody from Nazareth. In John 1, one of the disciples actually asks, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? David Platt says that Nazarenes were scorned, derided, and generally despised. That low public opinion was prophesied of the Messiah also. Isaiah says that the Messiah would be despised, rejected, and not respected at all before being put to death for our sins and healing us through his wounds. Overall, this chapter continues to add depth to Jesus as the Messiah. It is constantly bridging who Jesus was predicted to be with who Jesus actually is. So far, we've only covered his very early life, but next episode will fast forward to the start of his adult ministry. We'll read of the one who prepared the way for Jesus' arrival on the shores of Galilee, and then read of his baptism. We'll also get a bonus story that identifies the next set of rulers and religious elite who would be in a state of confrontation with Jesus throughout the rest of this book. I apologize this episode was heavy on scripture quotes, but hey, I tried to warn you. If you're not already, please find and follow us on Facebook and YouTube to stay up to date on all the latest postings. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.